Corporate America spends about $8 billion, with a B, dollars on this annually. The this I'm speaking of is diversity, equity, and inclusion, an industry that's been around for nearly 30 years. But it's probably safe to say the racial reckoning of 2020 put the discipline, practice, and business of DEI on the radar of people who likely paid very little attention to it before then. Hello, 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 and welcome to More Than Money, a podcast where we have nuanced conversations about money, business, and life, where we take the time to explore the human side of money because success with money is never just about the numbers. I'm your host, Jacquette Timmons, and I'm really, really glad you've taken the time to tune in today, especially since it's a special episode because I am joined by guests who have appeared on More Than Money previously. You met Paula Edgar on episode 116, where she and I talked about the power of goals. You met the co-founders of Pause on the Play, Erica Corday and India Jackson, on episode 63 in November of 2020, when I hosted the first DEI panel as part of the series Black Business Roundtable about tech, marketing, manufacturing, and social media. It's an understatement to say a lot has happened since November of 2020. And I was curious to get an insider's take on the current state of DEI. Plus, I wanted to do a deeper dive into the work and business of something that intersects with everything, including money, which is why I was so glad when Paula, Erica, and India said yes and agreed to geek out with me sharing their time, perspective, and expertise on what to some is an industry, but to them is clearly the work that is theirs to do. You'll soon hear why I say this. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Well, ladies, I am so excited for us to be back together again. Uh, Paula, I know you weren't here the last time, but India and Erica and I and a few others had this conversation uh, on the heels of the racial reckoning of the summer of 2020. And I was just thinking that it would be really great to revisit that time period and then also explore what has happened since and what perhaps still needs to occur as we digest all of this and really contend with what not only does DEI mean, but how do we make sure that it is actually being put into practice? So I thank you all for taking the time out of your schedules to spend some time with me and to those that will listen in on this conversation. And I thought one of the best ways to get us started is to do a round robin of introductions. So uh, Paula, why don't we start with you? Tell the good listeners who you are. Okay, this is only for the good listeners. I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, those bad ones. (laughs) Um, My name is Paula Edgar, and I am an attorney, although I don't practice law anymore. I am uh, a diversity, equity, inclusion consultant, and I do professional development through the lens of diversity, equity, inclusion. I often work with leaders to help them to understand the impact of their intent and to align those things in order to shift cultures 
uh, particularly within the legal space, but obviously across cultures and across industry. Awesome. And just like Erica and India were on the podcast before, so was Paula earlier this year when we talked about goals. So thank you for coming back. Uh, Erica, let's go next to you. Of course. So my name is Erica Corday. I am a diversity, equity, and inclusion coach. And the coaching piece really taken a little bit of a precedence because I like taking care of the whole human. Being an imperfect ally is not always easy. And so figuring out how to make sure that your values are aligned with the work that you're doing, the impact that you want to create, and the people and causes that you want to support means that we got to get some intentionality in place with those actions. Awesome. Thank you. And India. Hello, I'm India Jackson. I'm a brand visibility consultant, and I do that through the lens of diversity, equity, inclusion. And I think there's so much conversation around being visible and branding and design and marketing, and they're all a little bit intertwined. I think it's so important to do that with a foundation of values and integrating the values of DEI into how we show up. Awesome. And for those who don't know, India and Erica are partners and co-founders of Pause on the Play. And I know this because it's public knowledge, but also we had or use the same attorney for our trademark. So congratulations on the trademarking of Pause on the Play. And I think you have a couple of other things that were recently trademarked. So mm-hmm. yay, it was trademarking season over here. Yeah, it really <laughs> was. I think I saw like three of them, maybe four. It's been four, right? Four, it was yep. four. Okay, I was right. Want your fire, imperfect ally, imperfect allyship. That's awesome. And Pause on the Play. Yeah. Well, congratulations on it all. Yay. Thank you. Okay. So we're here to talk about DEI and um, how I wanted to start our conversation today was by actually going back and traveling in time a bit. Because I remember when I started my career at Bankers Trust, which was in 1986, I remember when affinity groups were just being formed. And when the bank sponsored the very first Women on Wall Street event, and if my memory serves me correctly, um, while there was a women-focused affinity group, there wasn't yet one for Black employees, men or women. And I wanted to start here because I think DEI in some shape or form while it has been around for a really long time. So if I think about, you know, 1986 to now, that's about 30 years, if not a little bit more. But I think it's probably safe to say that the racial reckoning of 2020 really kind of put the whole conversation around DEI um, on a broader landscape, if you will. And so I wanted to talk about how in particular... The, the racial reckoning of 2020 and the last two years put the discipline of DEI, the practice of DEI, and the business slash industry of it um, on the map. And so my first question is, were it not for the 2020 crisis, you know, the health and the, and the racial pandemic, do you think DEI would be as hot as it is right now? No, (laughs) no, (laughs) I, 
I would love to say that I, I, I believe that it, it would be. And that part of me that does this, because the reality is, is that to do any of this type of work, whether you're fully um, steeped in it or if it's the lens that you use it through, it doesn't matter how it shows up. You have to have a certain aspirational or hopeful nature within yourself. Otherwise, you couldn't do this because you would be like, well, I, I'm not going to make a difference. It's not going to get any better. So I'm not going to waste my time. Um, it, it, if you're doing it for the right reasons. Now, if you're here just for the money, obviously, that's a whole nother thing. But that's not what I do. So I can't speak to that. However, <laughs> um, I think that it became a topic because it became a topic. It got centered in a way that it could not be ignored because it was not just something that showed up on the news. It was the news. Mm -hmm. It was involving people that were not actually the people that were being directly impacted um, by the results of when people do DEI efforts. So you had people that they didn't quote unquote have any stake in this, but they were the ones that were um, in, in the, you know, positive situations, literally putting themselves out there as a shield for those of us to say that I am, you know, being clear that I am a part of this, but I don't think that it would have shown up in the same way because the reality is, is that like 2020 June on, most of us are like, you, you know, I've been saying the same thing, right? I'm not saying anything different today. It's just that today feels different. And so right. the conversation is one that you're willing to be a part of. Mm, that's I really think, powerful. I think the, 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 the pause, pardon my pause, <laughs> of us being in the uh, global pandemic, where we literally could not walk outside, we couldn't in interact and engage the way we had, made us experiencing the collective trauma of, of watching a murder a different experience, right? We, this country was founded on places where we, we were able to, well, I shouldn't say we, where majority folks had, had been watching lynching and it had been, it had been you know, a, a place of congregating. So it wasn't that we haven't seen Black death in, in, in this way before, but it was Black death, television, social media, and the pause that we were all in, all coming together to say, oh, this has got to be different than it was before, right? Now we can't run from it. Now we can't busy ourselves out of it. So that intersection just shifted the game. It was a, a, a seismic shift. Thank you. India, do you have anything to add there? Yeah, I think that bringing it a little bit further along into the now being, you know, 2022 as we're recording this, I feel like even that shift that was happening has shifted. Um, I witnessed so much of the focus very early on be, we need to purchase books and read books. We need to take these, uh, what was being called workshops, but they were not interactive. It was just passive learning with no conversation or Q and A. And we need to just do and learn all the things. And I use that word do loosely <laughs> because it was all like revolved around education mm -hmm. and there wasn't much conversation happening in a more deep, meaningful way. And a lot of that education was not interactive. It didn't involve conversation. It didn't involve personalization of what was being learned based on someone's unique industry and things like that. And so I feel like I've seen that shift 
to where the people who were doing this passive learning have shifted into, I need to pair this with conversation. I need to pair this with community. Um, The people who are still fully on board with creating change, I feel like have shifted into recognizing that education alone does not create change. We must also take action. Yeah. You actually already answered what what would have been my second question. Which is the whole notion of, you know, the way in which companies approach DEI and the the training being much more self-study and self-directed and, you know, just check a box that says you went through it. And now it sounds like what you're saying is it it's perhaps is still a bit of that, but it has shifted a tad bit more to being more experiential learning engagements where people can actually Uh, to just piggyback on one of the words you said, Erica, feel, right? And feel the difference uh, that comes from perhaps engaging in those uncomfortable moments and in those what could be uncomfortable conversations as opposed to the passive way of when you're just checking a box to say, yes, I did it. Do you think if there weren't this crisis that companies would have been more strategic about it? No, no. I'm going, I'm going to say no for the time. No, <laughs> there was plenty of opportunity for them to be strategic before this. Mm-hmm. Can you say it again? Because <laughs> <laughs> and you are absolutely correct because there was there is a place to be strategic when there is no immediate mm-hmm. um, catalyst that is calling you to do this. And that usually causes people to be more lackadaisical. I don't have to do this right now. There's no need, there's no purpose. It can wait, it can go on the back burner. And strategy comes when you take that space, quote unquote, that exists and you do something in it. That's where you can be strategic, but you have to first decide that this is something you want to be strategic about and simply start. People weren't starting. We've had hundreds of years to be strategic about this. Let's just Girl. be real. <laughs> and you're like, it wasn't 30 years. It wasn't 10 years. It was no. hundred years. It's been generations. Years, generations after generations, entrepreneurs and generations of those to be strategic about this. Um, and I'll say for me, I'm not sure if people were being... <laughs> Actually, I'm going to say, in my opinion, many of the people that I've personally encountered in this work were not being strategic about it in June of 2020 either. They felt urgency. They felt, I am a dirty racist if I don't do something. So I must do something now. And because that urgency and fear was there, there was no strategy. No, there was not. And reaction. Yes. And so everybody reacted. They didn't even consider what strategy was. It was simply, what is the immediate thing that you can do to help me from getting canceled? That was kind of it. Not what am I doing for those that are disenfranchised by what I have had the privilege to ignore up to this point. But what happened is those people fell off. I had people that showed up and did that. I had people that would come and be like, I want to do all this work and they pay for stuff and disappear. (laughs) And the reality throwing money at the wall, not spaghetti, right. but throwing money, money at it. I'm not racist, right? Literally, like I'm good, right? And what happened is, is that some of the people that did show up at that point, and I'll say within a year of that point, that some of which they were more thoughtful and paused for a second and made sure that they came with more intentionality. But even the people that did show up a little more immediately, 
they got through that immediate crux and then we're like, okay, so what happens to make this sustainable? What are the things that we do going forward? We know that there's a lot. We know it's a long game. Where do we start? And what does that plan look like? And also understanding that this is not work that is quantifiable with the same type of ROIs as the traditional business loves to be able to tote as this is why we're going to pay for this. If you were looking for me to give you that you invest this and you're going to get this back, you're going to get this many black bodies. I have nothing for you because that's not how this works. And so when you found the people that were understanding that that wasn't how that was going to work out, those are the people that stayed. Those are the people that are still here. Those are the ones that are like, yeah, this is what I've been doing to make sure that I am safer as a human to do this and to interact with someone else. And now I want to be able to figure out what is next. I wish that there were more people who understood this was a long game because I heard can you give me steps one through 15 of how to, to eradicate racism in yes. 26 days? Correct. Correct. <laughs> correct. Correct. So if, so if I work for you for the next three months, I'm good, right? It was really, really that where it's like, okay, we're, we're not fixing cars here, right? We're, we're, I'm not teaching you how to use Microsoft Word. I am teaching you right, how to, to literally think differently about things that you have been socialized to believe are true and then impact other people through your leadership or through your, you know, the, the spaces in which you have privilege. That's, that's, I, I always say, I'm doing the work with you, right? I'm a, a product right. of this work. And so uh, I'm, I'm a good <clears throat> years old. So that means that we should, <clears throat> for at least five hundred years and you've been doing it for exactly three weeks and you want to know why Tyrone didn't stay. <laughs> right. You're heartbroken because right. he didn't stay. And I'm like, he did. I don't know why he, we have to figure out. We have to assess. You know, one of the things that you, you were asked about in the beginning, you know, Jackie, was how does this work look? People want to put answers together without actually assessing what's going on. Mm-hmm. Right. Just tell me what to do. Can I, can I do a book club? Um, can we have an affinity group? Uh, can we hire someone? Yes, you can do all of those things. But why don't we think about what exactly is needed and where you are and why yeah. we're putting those solutions in place versus trying to take a, a box situation to put on your, you know, cylinder right. company, it makes no sense. And um, right. I'm frustrated because I just was talking about this on a, a LinkedIn live where it's like, it's common sense. A plus B, you got to figure out what A is, you got to figure out what B is, and then think about how you're going to get to, you know, the end of that equation, as opposed to just being like, we got C girl. Right. <laughs> well, like India said, you can't do your way out of it. Yes. Right. That's something that I always say when it comes to money, like you can't think your way to the other side of where it is you want to be. There is something that you have to do. And I think that's the thing that you all are tapping into as well, that you got to do something. And sometimes that doing is really, really uncomfortable for folks. Um, And so I, I think I know what each of your answers will be to this, but do you think companies really want to change? Or do they simply want to look like they are changing? I think it depends on the company you're talking about. And so I I, I realize you can't name names, but what's been the difference then between the companies with whom you've worked where you were like, yeah, they really do want to see a change versus those where it was just really performative? (laughs) I can give some very tangible aspects, Um, some actually before Black Lives Matter. 
of, I want to, I want to book a photo shoot that has diversity to support um, our flyers and marketing about us having some new positions available. We're going to go on this recruiting spree and we realize we have no women in our workplace and no people of color in our workplace. So let's just, do you have some models or some people that you can get into these photos so that we can look safe for them to work here? And then as you start to dig, well, are we going to pay them? Uh, no, we really don't have the budget for that. Um, have you done any DEI work? Are you working with a DEI consultant to make sure your workplace is safe for people of these different backgrounds to work here in like a leadership or at least just not the office secretary role? Uh, no, we're not working with any DEI people, but we really want these pictures. It's going to make a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. The initial piece has to be that you you are putting resources to it. To anything else, if you if you have a, an issue in terms of your finances, you're going to get like a good accountant. Right. You're looking, you have to put solutions and resources to, to for those solutions. And whenever someone reaches out and says, well, you know, we haven't really considered budget. You haven't. Then you should consider calling me back. You know, that's right. <laughs> right. Right. Because you have to think, well, what am I willing to spend here? And, right. you know, I, I've told this story before. I had someone who I went to an organization, they had a breakfast and I happened to see the caterer's bill and it was $10,000. And that same organization reached out to me months later about doing work. And they were like, we only have $2,000. And I was like, well, basically, this is less important than breakfast. That's what I'm going It's right. Yeah. And I think sometimes what happens is, is people are in such a rush to appear as if they are doing the work. And so it's like, how many people can I get on my podcast that look diverse and we push them all out at one time and then we'll just go back to business as usual and look homogenous? Or right. how many things can I go do right now in this moment to say that I did it? And it's not about making this an integrated part of what happens across the board. It's not about diversifying the information and the content that you're taking in or what you're normalizing through what you do. It's not about shifting the conversation and the dynamics and realizing where there are actual systemic challenges coming up that you have not been privy to because they don't show up in the intersectionality of who you are. And so when you don't care, you simply just in, insert demographic here and think that that's enough. And that that is simply performative. That is simply save me today. That there's no longevity, does not last. It is just, I'm good, right? I can, 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 I, can I get my diploma now? Can, can I get my thing to show to everybody that I'm a good insert person here? Because not always just white people. Right. I'm a good insert who here right. that people can come to. Right. Well, and I'm also going to say that Part of that is looking at is what you're doing self-serving and really asking yourself that question because it can seem like, well, no, it's not self-serving to provide these job opportunities to more women or to more people of color in that example that I gave. But it is self-serving if you're not making sure that your work environment is going to be a healthy place for them. It is self-serving when you're looking for people to volunteer their time and energy to be in your images to even make this hiring happen. 
And it is also self-serving and how that makes your company look more diverse. Uh, I think what shows up for me is recognizing that and some of the clients Eric and I work with together, and then also witnessing a lot of the work that you've been doing on your own, Erica, as a DEI consultant um, specifically, the companies that have stuck around and continue to do the work and have really made a lot of impact, they're asking themselves that question. And what comes first is how can I be of service, not how can I serve myself? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's this dichotomy of recognizing that there's this blend here happening of what is going on front-facing what is going on rear facing if you're a business owner, and also what is going on with you as a human. It's about doing all three places of the work, your own internal deprogramming and relearning and unlearning in addition to what your business needs. That's what makes it hard. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was just thinking, um, I don't know if you have been watching the confirmation hearings, but I have been I have not been able to to turn away, (laughs) like between calls and everything. I have been so tuned in for a variety of reasons. Some I'll share once we stop recording. Um, But the thought that just came to me as you were speaking, uh, India, is this whole notion of, and this is not a, a, a completely thought out question, but here's where my mind went. For the companies that are doing it well, and they're making the time to uh, do that internal interrogation and ask themselves the hard questions and get to the point where they're like, okay, yeah, what do I need to do to really come at this from a place of service? What are the conversations that those CEOs or those the board of directors of those companies um, need to have with the other companies that are not doing that? To get them on board, because sometimes I just feel like the responsibility is way too much and and misplaced on like, quote unquote, us versus the people that could perhaps have the greatest influence. Like, what do they need to be talking about with the folks that are not doing it? So I think about the, 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 the connection that I was making with the hearings is there are some people as you listen to those senators, they're like, okay, they get it. These other folks don't get it at all. And those are the ones that should be talking to one another. I know, I know, I know, I don't know. But those are the ones that should be talking to one another because they should be the ones trying to convince one another, not us trying to do that for them. Does that make any sense? It does. But the challenge to me is that would that would require for the conversations that they had with one another to be transparent enough to actually for the things that they're doing to be the things that they're like, yeah, I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. Not my company looks good because I do it and it makes me money. So like you can't have that conversation with somebody else when you haven't truly interrogated your own values enough to understand, am I doing this because I think I should, or am I doing this because I really want to? And I think that there's a difference. Now, at the end of the day, if the I'm doing it because I should is a part of the domino effect, I understand personally that with this type of work, There is a point that you're doing it because you think that you should. What I look for is that clicking in of like, oh, okay, that thing that I was missing before, I am now understanding that. 
And I'm seeing this be reflected in my values and my beliefs and my actions. And that's where that change comes in. And so that conversation only happens if their, you know, cigar and brandy conversation actually revolves around, yes, we actually want to change the landscape versus, but what does that mean for me? What do I lose? Because that comes from the zero sum game. Right. Right. Think, Paula, you look like yeah. you wanted to say something. It's, you know, Jack has heard me say this before. I say three words every single day, intent, impact, and accountability. Mm-hmm. So if you have folks who are surrounding you, who are similar, you know, in a similar situation in terms of leadership, in terms of industry, and you see that they're spouting ignorance or they are inactive or, or whatever the situation that they're in, and you say nothing and you allow that to be where you, mm-hmm, well, you know, that's just John right? That's not, our responsibility comes from holding ourselves and others accountable. It's for highlighting when damage is being done. It is being a space where folks are going to leave and go to because John is not doing right. So they're going to come over and and showing that when you do it properly, you in fact don't have issues with recruiting and retention and elevation because the space that you're working on is one that is safer for people to go to. And so it's the accountability piece. You know, I've watched for like the three seconds that I watch, because I just can't have to watch the highlights. And I said to myself, if our collective is broken and we sit and watch somebody, we know that they're saying the wrong, we know they're asking the wrong thing. And we just sit there like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, well, we, you know, we're on, we're on team X. It, it, it will never work because you were saying that I'll allow you to sit and traumatize. I'll allow you to do damage um, because you were part of my collective. And that's, that's how white supremacy works. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what it is. And so, um, it, it breaks my heart to, to see things like that because it's like, we have to shift this. We have to. I also think it's remembering that you can be the shift as well. So sometimes these conversations will present themselves to where you have an opportunity, you have the contact information to reach out to someone. And sometimes they don't. And remembering that every day through your actions, you are creating an example for other people in your industry by the way that you're leading your brand, by the way that you're showing up, by the way that you're running your company. And other people are witnessing that. Hmm. Good point. Well, I know that we've been talking about DEI for the last however minute, many minutes, but I know that there might be some people that don't really even understand it, right? It's really abstract. Um, so I wonder if you could spend a few moments describing the, the scope of work, especially since um, each of you come at it from a different angle. So maybe the, the work and then your particular way of um, approaching the work? So I think for me, a lot of it is the understanding that before we immediately jump in and we get into, okay, we, you know, we're going to look at the company culture. We're going to look at your hiring. We're going to look at your onboarding. We're going to look at your review before you can do any of those types of actual actions. There has to be a pause to first get clear on what are the values here? And not just you as the person in charge, but everybody that is a part of building what this business or this brand is actually showcasing that it is it is here to do and who it's here for. And so there has to be that clarity on like, what, what are we doing? Why are we here? And really understanding like, okay, 
if these are the changes that you want to make, what's the outcomes? Why is this happening? Like there has to be a lot of, of, of effort put into getting clear on the foundation of why anything is going to happen. Because again, there's not that traditional kind of a standard ROI. Like, you know, I invest this much and this is how much I'm going to get in a return. And so you have to be clear on once we actually start doing things, if you don't know what you hope the impact and the outcomes are going to be, you're not going to be able to measure whether or not you're, you're on the right path, nor whether or not, again, using that word feel, does it feel like it's getting there? Does it feel different? Does it feel challenging to you? Because if it's easy, then it's very likely you're doing it wrong. That's where I'm going to say, because usually I'm like, you can't do it wrong. If it feels like, oh, this is a breeze. You, you have done something terribly wrong because it is not a breeze. <laughs> it is not how this works. So you, you oh. have to, you got to get clear on, on what's happening. You have to understand that there's multiple people that are a part of this, that are, that are on your team. You, you have to begin to, you know, have space to ask the questions of what do people need and not assume what they need from you. So I think that there's a lot of pieces that come up and it really depends on what the company does and where they are as far as, you know, again, how are they interacting with their staff? What are the conversations that are being had? Where are the check-ins for, you know, the company itself, as well as the people that it's working with for everybody to be able to kind of evaluate each other and figure out where it is, figuring out when we talk about company culture, breaking down what is company culture for you? What type of company culture do you want? How is this being reflected and knowing that it's a living, breathing, evolving thing and it's going to grow and it's going to change and there's no end point. This is a journey. There's, there's, there's no like, I'm done. That's not how this goes. And being very open to allowing it to unfold and to be gentle with yourself at the same time, because whenever imperfect allyship shows up, you have to know that at some point you're going to get it wrong. You're going to have a misstep. Something isn't going to go the way that you thought. And so you have to hold space for being imperfect and still being willing to be in action. Now, not from a reckless place. I am not saying go out here and be willy nilly all over, but understand that you you don't know everything and no one's a monolith, which is more reason why like you're not going to know exactly how to talk to black women or how to talk to the LGBTQIA person that you bought. Like there's no standards here. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, I think a lot of it is getting rid of the old paradigms and being willing to recreate new ones and just staying open. Staying open is a is a really good way of looking at it. I, I I studied anthropology in undergraduate, and I always say that that's probably the skill that I use the most when it comes to, um, to, to do DEI work because I am constantly observing and wanting to know what the structures, who the people are, who the leaders are, where the influences are, which can be three different <laughs> sets of people. Um, and uh, a question I always ask is, what brought you here? Why'd you contact me, right? So Jaquette knows I do a lot of emergency DEI where it's like, oh, they said that thing. Oh, they did this thing. But when it's when it's a little less hot than that, then they come to me, you know, what what was it? Was it employee activism? Was it the leadership having a revelation? Was it, you know, something happened within your community? Whatever it was, that helps me to kind of get to an empathy point with them because usually folks are like, I'm confused, I don't know what to do. Help me help. And um 
the, the, the process should be bespoke based on where you are in your process, based on what you know, what you have already done um, and where you have set to intend and you want to go um, along with the best practices that I bring as a practitioner, um, as well as folks who are internal. I always say, you will know you better than I know you. <laughs> I know what's happening in the industry, but you know you. All of those things come together to develop a plan. Um, and then and then that plan is executed on it and it's, it's navigated and it shifts because of what you know people leave, things change. Um, it should be malleable. Um, and uh, oftentimes people want a an equation around the, like, well, if you do this and you do this and you do that and it'll happen. And, and if that were the case, it would be wonderful. It would be much easier. I would have less headaches and I would sleep more, but that's not the case. You're doing deep empathy work. It's people work. Um, it's, it's dealing with the impact of trauma externally and internally and wanting to have a space where people feel as if they belong where they are. Um, and, so often that doesn't happen for a myriad of reasons. And we look and think about diversity as specific to race or gender. And I, you know, if we look at it as all of the things that diversity is enc encompasses, it makes it a, a little bit easier to resonate for folks when you think, you know, any space you're in, as long as there's two different people, is diverse. <laughs> and it may not be as diverse as you want it to be, right? But it includes, we're different in that. And there's power and a magic in that diversity that we should be tapping into so that we can bring that to the space for whatever the mission is of the organization that we're working for. And so, um, yeah, India. <laughs> you know, you spoke to power and magic at the end and a lot of the work from my side of it is taking a look at that. Um, whether you are a student with an internship or the founder of a company, you have access, you have some type of power right? It may be different for each person. That access and that privilege might be different for each person. But if we're listening to podcasts and if we have social media accounts, at the very least, we have the privilege of electricity to some degree, which means we have the ability to take a look at owning that power and being proud of it and deciding what do we want to do with it and how can we use it to create change? How can we use it to share a message? And how can we use it to inspire other people to think differently? And really the foundation of that is first deciding what are your values and moving from being implicit about those values to being explicit, integrating them into everything that you say, everything that you do, and it's such a beautiful process because I think a lot of people think of the tangibles when they think of my part of Pause in the Play. So what your images look like, what's on your website, these kinds of things, what your brand messaging is. But also in order to get there and to feel confident in speaking about these things publicly, you're also having to hold yourself accountable and being with an integrity of what you said you value. I'm pausing because as I listen to what you all just shared, I, I know that, you know, when I'm working with people with their money and or with their money in business, uh, they want to change. <laughs> Otherwise, they wouldn't have come to me. <laughs> However, sometimes there is still resistance to that change. And so I would love to know how do you tackle that resistance either to the effort or to the message, um, and especially if the directive is trickling down from the top 
and the folks that have to actually implement it are resisting having to do it, right? Because the person that's at the top doesn't have to necessarily deal with the reaction from the people that quote unquote might be most impacted by, okay, you need to do this. So how do you tackle that, that resistance to either the effort or the message or both? I expect resistance. And I actually question, and I'm very suspicious if I don't. Ah, really? Because this work is change management. And, and to, to, to bring change into any, we like to be comfortable, right? If I said to you, hey, I'm going to give you a package of, of discomfort, you'd be like, I'm good. I would like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want that. Okay. And so, so when you say, you know, I, I walk into doors sometimes, you know, back in the day when we walk into doors and go to elevators. But anyway, um, and I say, see the, the here she comes, here comes Paula, she's going to make me uncomfortable. And I'm proud of that. But I expect some folks to be like, you know what? Back in 1963, you didn't, you couldn't even be in the workplace, Paula, which I've heard so many times, right? <laughs> uh, and so I'm still figuring that out. I'm like, 1963 was a long, you still figuring this out, what's going on? And yet, if you think about how many generations are in the workplace, there are absolutely people who are still like, what? You supposed right. to be here, right? And right. So, so right. that resistance is a part of our human nature. It's a part of not wanting to change. It's, it's when sometimes when my you know ther- not my therapist, my my, my uh, trainer says to me, "Do some more push-ups. I'm like, "Why?" that, right? We want the results, but we don't want to do the work. And right. you have to do the work, and you have to experience some of the challenges in that. And so, dealing with resistance is, is I do it through empathy. I get it. It's not easy. I'm, I'm I feel that I understand the challenges there, and yet we still have a mission to accomplish. So I'll give you 30 minutes to to stomp and tantrum and then let's get back on the road to where we have to go. Or or if your resistance is so deep, you need to leave because the organization has said that this is what we're doing. And if you want to be a part of it then your resistance is not welcome here anymore. Mm. That. And so for me, it was two things. So when we talk about resistance, um, I mean, part of it for me is like if if we're talking about someone that maybe is the decision maker, you are the leader um, or your small business in a way that like, I don't, I don't have employees right now. I have contractors and it's really, it's really me. And I'm, you know, trying to figure mm-hmm. out how to make the, I hate the trickle down thing. Cause we know that didn't work, but right. uh, that's kind of where they're going. If there's a resistance there, it's like, Oh, I don't have to do this. I'm not doing this with you. Like I am not willing to partner with someone that doesn't want to be partnered with. And right. so there is a point to where I totally get it. You don't want to do it. Cool. We're not going to waste my time. Right. So, <laughs> so, so there's that. So there is right. actively having to feel comfortable and confident enough in my skin to be able to understand that anything that you show up with is not mine. And I am happy to give it back and keep it stepping. Mm-hmm. However, on the other side, if we are looking at it from a more institutional space and things are being spread out, you know, entity wide and you're having some resistance, then this is where you can begin to have that empathy and a certain amount of compassion show up from the sense of anybody who is being confronted with the concept of, hey, the way that you've processed yourself and others up until now, the way that you've been socialized, the way that you have been conditioned is wrong. And I need you to change it. That's a hard thing thing to swallow, to tell somebody that everything that you have thought 
was right, particularly when it came from people that you love and value and revere. It was wrong. That's a hell of a thing to expect somebody to just take. I don't care how much honey you put with that. That's a lot. And so I don't think that that then means that they are allowed to stay there because there are literally people that lose their lives because of that comfort. But it also is important to not negate that it is not only uncomfortable, but it is soul shaking. You are changing the entire foundation that you have been able to exist on up until this point. And that is not easy. It can be a small piece. It can be a big piece, but it is one of those things that the more you get into it, the more you realize there's a fault line here. And this whole thing is about to break up. And so when you are able to be in an entity, and this is where I personally like when I'm able to kind of come in and it's like, yeah, I can do this. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, 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 wait, this got real, real quick. (laughs) But at this point, I've been around long enough to where there's a certain amount of comfort here to that, you know, that I'm not in here to point my finger and tell you that you're wrong. You as a human are wrong, that we are navigating change. We are navigating opportunities. We are navigating what feels very difficult, but that you have access to if you are willing to actually be in action with this. And so if that comes up, we can work because I've had people that, no, that, that doesn't apply to me. And then, you know, six, eight months, they're like, oh, um, wait, wait, um, I, I take it back. <laughs> take it back. I get it now. And so things shift. And it honestly, it's that time and, and that um, camaraderie that's built. That's where people will show up and they're like, hey we really brought you in for X, but you know, Y just came up and we think we want to work on this. But actually, can we go back to P too? Because I forgot about that and I really want to work on that too. That's where they start being willing to peel the onion back because they have figured out that I really am here to partner with you. Mm-hmm. We can do this. You mm-hmm. can do this. Mm-hmm. And it's not about you being wrong lesser than. And I think that in this work, there are people that, as I collectively and lovingly call them, they are diversity dominatrixes. They are here to crack the whip and put their their leather boot on your neck and tell you you're a dirty racist. Because for some people, that's what they need to get it started. (laughs) That is where they are. (laughs) You have Paula dying with the diversity (laughs) dominatrix. She cannot contain herself. I need to trademark that right now. There are some people that that is what they are here for. There are some that are like, I am here for the kinder, gentler. And then you have some of us that are somewhere in in the the, the center of the spectrum. And we can kind of bob and weave a little bit. And it's understanding that we have to deploy whatever we maybe need in that particular situation. And the reality is, is that there is somebody to meet you where you are, no matter where you are on your journey. And you have to understand that there are so many of us out here for that exact reason. And I don't take anything away, nor do I think it takes anything away from me to have other people out here to do this. There is more than enough racism for all of us to to do this. (laughs) (laughs) I love you, Erica. (laughs) Not ready for that. Oh goodness! But also fact. 
I'm just saying. Yes, yes, yes. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. As I try to get myself together, India, did you want to say anything on that? <laughs> you know, I'll be brief about mine and just say that I do not identify as being a coach or a therapist or coming from that background at all. I'm very more from the strategic and tangible side of this work. Um, And so a large part of me being able to work with resistance is number one, being incredibly patient with people and recognizing that people can have a lot of attachment to their public image. They can have a lot of attachment to what is going out on their social profiles, and that can be wrapped up in their identity. And so that awareness for me is so, so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that does require a certain level of patience and also full transparency and honesty that I am not a coach to coach you here through that. And I don't think that the work that I do is best served doing it with me alone. I do believe that it is best served with pairing yourself with a coach who is able to support you through that or a therapist that is able to help you to navigate some of the internal identity pieces that are natural to come up with changing your public image, whether that be as little as a color change in your logo and in your branding to as big as we're going to talk about how being a female lifestyle empowerment brand is problematic. So (laughs) there's a full spectrum there. Right. And (laughs) I think with a lot of the work that I do, um, it also requires investigating and being curious and asking great questions and getting really clear on where someone wants to go and anchoring everything we do back to what they said matters most to them and finding the path sometimes of least resistance to get it done. So sometimes that looks like recognizing you're already doing this thing. Let's just talk about that a little bit more instead of going straight to this more scary topic to cover. Well, you know, speaking of the more scary topic to cover, um, one of the things that I've just been noodling on is how can we really have a a serious conversation around DEI and some some people also add the B, D-E-I-B, how can we have a serious conversation about it? while there simultaneously is a whole group of people who do not want to teach American history. (laughs) I think we all take a breath on that one. (laughs) Especially after some of the pieces of having to witness what they were doing in these Senate hearings yesterday. I was like, oh, my gosh. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, okay. first of all, the fact that we are discussing it as critical race theory. Um, part of what comes up for me when it's when it's talked about in that way is that we have yet again othered the history. We're going to now talk about these pieces that aren't being talked about and how some of us are saying that they need to be talked about. But we also have to be honest in that this is the history that is revolving around black and brown people. And it's already being talked about separately. I mean, we got a whole 28 days out of 365 every year. Uh, Sarcasm for y'all that can't see my face um, (laughs) to talk about this. But I think 
the minute that we immediately say black history, there's a bit of a conundrum there because, yes, acknowledge what what belongs to me, what belongs to us, what is ours collectively, where are the nuances that aren't being picked up when you have to put it all together and people fall through the cracks and don't get acknowledged and certain uh, things that happen never get addressed. But the reality of it is, is that you came and took folks and put them on a boat and you brought them here to build an entire country. And then you other the history that they created. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's not how that works. That's not how any of that works, because the history is all of our history and history is meant to be. It's not meant to be subjective. It is what it is. It is. It is not your truth. It is not my truth. It is a fact. Right. And so the minute people are allowed to let their feelings dictate facts, as we see has happened with news, because news is no longer factual. It is very much opinion based Mm -hmm. and it has too much spin on it. Mm -hmm. We're we're not now actually getting what we need to get to understand how we got to where we are and how shifts can be made. And so we can't even agree on what's a fact. How are we supposed to be able to dismantle it? And that's where the challenges come in, because it's like we're all using different playbooks. And I, for the life of me, cannot understand how this mindset of, you know, using the hearings again in a Senate hearing of somebody that is actually more qualified for the job than the people currently doing the job. I am going to ask you about a book. Yes. That has absolutely nothing to do with what you do. Yes. Because I need to take this as an excuse to talk about critical race theory, something that I clearly know nothing about. Right. And no one is holding you accountable. Right. No No one is saying this is inappropriate, unacceptable, not relevant, foolish and dumb. And this is why we live in a space where I I, I always say I'm, I'm critical of the fact that we are not critical thinkers. There's not enough critical thinking at all. Like why? Critical race theory is something I learned in law school. Why are we even talking about this? Like, why this is not, like, we're talking about literal, to your point, Herka, the teaching of history and, and literally what has already happened. And then to say, it's, it's like, it's a uh, national gaslighting. Yes, <laughs> it, it genuinely is. Because like to watch things happen and to have nobody ask why did you ask this question? Why did you pose this? And yet someone else that doesn't look the same way. Oh, no, we just don't ask these questions here. And it's supposed to be automatically respect. Say what? Huh? Excuse me. Say what? That's not how this works. Mm-hmm. That's not how any of this works. But that's what's normalized right. because and I and I and I feel 100 percent comfortable in saying this because everything that we're watching is the constant pushing of the bar because this is an overqualified black woman. Yeah. Because when it has been white men previously, that didn't happen. They were allowed to qualified white woman. Correct. They were allowed to tantrum and everything else on the stand. And it was fine. Right. This woman guess. And I had to salute her because she sure enough yesterday took her pause and had to breathe. And I felt that sigh when it was asked about the Ibram X candy book. And she was like, (sighs) (laughs) 
every black woman on the planet or somebody that understood a black woman understood what that side was. It was like, like, you did not. You did not. And I know it took everything in her to not want to move her head to the side. Like, did you really just just Mm -hmm. do this? What if we lived in a world where she had the agency to say, you know, that is not appropriate and not even relevant to these proceedings. Oh, my God. I really wish that. Oh, my God. Yeah. She was able to say. Yeah. What does this have to do with my, you know, my scholarship? What does it have to do with the, my record on the bench? And and why? And who do you think you are for asking me? Like, but but then she'd be an angry black woman. Then she'd yep. be see, you see, you see what I'm talking about? This is how they are. It, and, right. and it's that circular gaslighting, right? Like it's like, oh, right. okay, mm-hmm. am, I, am I going crazy? Yes. Yeah. Right. I am. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yet that gaslighting cannot go to the fact of like, y'all know she's more qualified than y'all though, right? Can we gaslight there and remind them that she is literally more qualified than every single person that currently holds that seat? Every person. And that is not me overstating. That is not me just trying to bring up black girl magic. That is 400 percent fact, 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 Mm -hmm. fact. fact. (sighs) Yeah, I I, I could not let us not touch upon that because (laughs) it just seems like that would not be. good for our panel discussion to not bring that in. But uh, India, I think you have something you want to say. Is that what that look is? <laughs> no, I think Erica and Paula covered it. I mean, and honestly, when you start erasing history, you're bound to repeat history, right? Yeah. And it shows up in ways that I think so many people who haven't been on this DI I journey and going deeply and deeply into it and the ways that it infuses itself into everything, you know, um, are not aware of from things as little as, well, more recently, it felt very big in witnessing people's businesses behind the scenes as urgency to hustle culture, to things that we think have nothing to do with American history, but have everything to do with slavery and viewing humans as machines to put out some output. How many crops can you pick in a certain amount of time? That affects everyone, not just Black people, Mm -hmm. not just descendants of slaves. Well, speaking of that, it might not sound (laughs) like a great segue, but I think it's a perfect segue because this whole notion of what happens to one group of people happens to all of us makes me think about allyship. And I know you, um, you all talk about that in your, in your work, but here's something that I'm thinking about. And that is that typically when we talk about allyship, at least the way I understand it, not being in the DEI space, it's, it's about white allyship. But I started thinking, and I'm going back to my banker's trust days again, how there was someone that was from Spain. There was someone um, in my group that was from Cuba and another that was in my group that was from Argentina. Now, back then we didn't have the, we, we didn't use the, the moniker Latinx or Latin or Latina. It was Hispanic. And don't you call them Hispanic. <laughs> they were like, I am not Hispanic. Um, they were like, I'm Spanish. I'm Cuban or Cuban American now, um, or Argentinian, Argentinian. Yeah. Argentinian. And so it made me think about, there's a lot of conversation, or at least as I hear it around white allyship, but what about allyship when certain groups of people who fit into 
the brown category, if you will, see themselves as other and don't really see themselves as being a part of, you know, the black and brown part of the equation, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, I got I got all kinds of stuff here. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So. So, okay, I want to start by acknowledging for anybody that maybe isn't familiar with the term, it is a term again that um, we've trademarked it, but I I think it is something that people have have heard often and it's allyship, but we talk about imperfect allyship. And so allyship really is just you acknowledging that there is access or resources or privilege or something that you have or have free and flowing access to that someone else does not have based on uh, the way that they identify, whether that's their race, their religion, their size, their their um, neural, if, if they're neurodivergent, if they are disabled, insert, you know, identifier here. And so it really is anyone that does not look, live or love in the exact same way that you do. And you decided that you are going to utilize what you have in order to address a disparity or disparities that they are experiencing. And so it is often coined to be focused around white people, which, again, is white supremacy, even trying to sneak into that, because let's prioritize white allies is is what this is about. And allyship is. First of all, you you the only way to do it is imperfectly because it's not something to be done perfectly. So it's only imperfectly done. But allyship is about also addressing the intersectionality of, of us as individuals, because if I as a black woman am now an ally to someone that is black, but is LGBTQIA plus, on the surface, somebody may be like, but y'all look the same. How can you be an ally? It's like, but there's something that I have that they don't. And I don't say that in, in prioritizing myself, but if I have a level of, of privilege somewhere that you don't have, then that means that there is a place that I can be an ally for you. We, I literally just had Paula on the podcast to talk about how black women can be allies to one another because we identify the same. And often we are not supporting each other as much as I want us to. That doesn't happen as as freely and as flowing as my heart really wants it to be. And I think that allyship is about acknowledging that those of us that are not white have a responsibility to one another within our own interdependence to be more supportive of each other and to extend that allyship to one another. And dare I even say prioritize it there. Mm -hmm over those that are already going to have a certain amount of privilege because of the skin that they were born in. We don't have that, particularly when we talk about black people, when we talk about Southeast Asians, people that are automatically going to possibly show up darker, which means you're going to have a whole nother set of stuff happening. And if we think about that from a sense of like, you're not, you know, the model Asian person, Southeast Asian people are pretty much just completely erased from the conversation about Asian people. Mm-hmm. And so anytime that we look at any community that identifies in some way, shape or form as non-white and then has an intersectionality there, are you a woman? Are you femme? Are you queer? Are you disabled? Are you neurodivergent? Whatever that happens to be, there is always an opportunity there that we should be taking often to be able to support one another. That is what should be happening more often. That allyship should always prioritize us because we are deprioritized so 
often. Hmm. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Mic drop. What you need to know about allyship in this league. Like, perfect. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think if I were to add anything, it's just reiterating what you said, Erica, that allyship, it doesn't have a demographic attached to it. Every single person on the planet can be an ally to someone else. And until we're willing to recognize that, it's going to take us a lot longer to create the changes we want to witness in the world. Right. And that allyship needs to have room for imperfection. And I will be the first to admit that even I have to be imperfect in my allyship because I don't know what firsthand the lived experiences of someone who has a disability may be, or someone who has a different sexual preference than me may be, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And even I, as a Black woman in America, have room to be an ally to other people and honestly would not have half of the decisions made in the business that Eric and I own together, as well as the ones that we own separately. If I were not thinking about how can I be a better ally, things like show notes being written as articles has been a really big thing for our podcast Mm -hmm. because I'm willing to recognize that there are people who prefer to, or need to, or whatever that may be taking the information and written content instead of listening to a podcast episode. Right. And it's the small little changes like that being done imperfectly, even my language as I'm talking about it, being imperfect and still being willing to share Mm -hmm. that can inspire someone else to do something to you differently, that can actually make a change for someone else. That's awesome. Thank you for that. I want to shift gears now and talk about the business of DEI. And as I was preparing for our time together, um, I was kind of shocked by these numbers. Maybe you won't be shocked by these numbers that I'm about to share because you're in it. Um, but to be, you know, be really explicit about where I sourced this, this was from, um, I guess, a DEI consultant slash research group called the Winters Group. And one of the things that they said was that um, uh, companies pledged $50 billion to racial equity in 2020. But then according to the creative investment research uh, study, only 250 million of that has been spent. So that's one stat. Another was this 15% pledge. And I guess this was for businesses to pledge 15% of their retail shelf space to Black-owned businesses. And the, this same study uh, referenced uh, Sephora because Sephora took the pledge. In 2020, they had eight Black-owned uh, companies among 400 companies. And in May of 2021, they went from eight to 13. So that's about a 3% increase. And then one other uh, stat was from a P&G, Procter & Gamble. They set a goal of 40% of its workforce being comprised of multicultural employees. 
So that's about 20 to 25%. And the goal was to increase the number of Black employees from 10 to 13%. And as of May 2021, it was still at 10%. So given these numbers, it doesn't look like much progress is being made. <laughs> and I was about to say, am I being cynical? But I don't think I'm being cynical. <laughs> no. if, you, if you throw numbers into the air and say, I hope this, this goes into the right bucket, it's never going to get where you need it to get to. So a lot of those pledges was like out of the, the trauma, out of the need to do something fast post George Floyd. Um, with no science behind numbers, whether it was even available in terms of the, the actual demographics within your space to even have source those types of changes, that those that work wasn't done, right? So if I just go, well, I'm going to increase this podcast by 50% and nobody's in this room, like, you know what I mean? Like, you just, you can't, you can't do that. And so um, some of those promises um, were were uh, empty promises and uh, and it actually regresses progress because you are so sort of loud about what you're going to do and people take your word as your bond. And then they're like, well, you didn't do this, right? Exactly what we're doing right now. Well, you said X percent and you didn't hit it there, but putting together sort of goals that are, that are not cemented by actual um, numbers of what's possible one. And then it's two, not having a strategy to implement and to, uh, to exercise and to be, to, and having continual touch points to, to check and see if things are working in that time frame. Like this, this, this lack of strategy and lack of really thoughtful forethought in terms of making some of these, um, these promises. And it's problematic. It's what India was saying earlier about just being like, well, I, I want it to be great. We, all of us do, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But what are you going to actually do in order to make that happen? And so, you know, when I think about the first numbers you said about that initial big spend, a lot of what was we thought was going to be them doing internal work was external work. So it was like, we're going to put you know, stuff towards racial reckoning fund. And that was to nonprofits that didn't include you. So you still have a terrible culture in t- your own culture. Mm-hmm. Terrible. But in, insert any the nonprofit here. And I don't listen. I want nonprofits to get all the money. They, they got it. And hopefully they're working on their own stuff. But your own place sucks. And black people are leaving your place because. All you've done is that external piece where you can give money. And again, it's, it's got to be yes and not only that. Um, and even within those spaces, the accountability didn't happen. What else are you doing? How else are we going to do this? You know, it, it, it's, it just, you know, I, I'm frustrated hearing that because I know that's the story people tell me. Well, we tried, we said we were going to do that and it didn't work. <laughs> right, right, right. And so they blame they blame perhaps the uh, practitioner who came in to do the work on why it didn't work, right? Oh yeah, it's easier to blame us any day. It's our, it's our fault when we right. came into a broken system. Right. So there's that. So, okay, so I heard a few things came up for me. One, the numbers don't surprise me. Um, as hopeful as I am, I'm also cynical enough to be like, mm-hmm, yep, <laughs> that. Because, you know, uh, there's a few things. One, the 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 dollar amounts that I heard still paled in comparison to the amount of money that was taken for a phallic rocket to be sent into space for what twenty minutes it was, <laughs> and so when we look at an entire thing, and it's like, but this is what we did for twenty minutes. It's like, 
priorities much? Priorities. So, so that's that. Okay. Um, and I'll use Sephora as an example. Sephora has gotten in a lot of trouble for bringing in minority businesses, but then stealing their ideas. And so that money doesn't have anything to do with whether or not your culture is actually going to support and center these brands in a way that actually benefits them and does not simply benefit you being able to learn enough to create a knockoff. Ah. I years ago worked in a salon and that particular salon owner would charge less than the people that would rent booths from her. And so you have people that are paying you to work here that are charging a higher price. And then people would walk in the door. Of course, they're going to go to wherever is cheaper. So you're not allowing people to actually stay here. That's not a culture that works if that's why you're bringing people in. So as an entity like that, are you actually supporting people winning or are you simply supporting your own profit? So that doesn't work at all. And I think if we then look at the hiring initiative piece, If you have not observed for opportunities of growth within the way that you are hiring people, where you are trying to shift the numbers and the demographics to not only say, I want to hire you, but I want to figure out how I can retain you and how I can elevate you here. If this person is simply going to come in and be the administrative assistant for the next 50, 11 years, that's not the answer. So if that person cannot come in, they cannot stay, they cannot be promoted you have failed. If that was the initiative that you say you were here to do. No, no, y'all. No. Right. Right. And Paula, you wrote about that in one of your recent blog posts during Black History Month, talking about Black associates. Yes, I had I had someone tell me today that that was my Black temper tantrum. And I was like, you ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I, I wrote about it because I'm because I'm frustrated. Right. Because, I, you know, I deal in the legal profession, which, you know, at some point in your life, for some reason or the other, you're going to meet a lawyer. And so it's important to me that that our profession is as an understanding of the the benefit of of inclusion and, and, and belonging. And and really, we've had such. Lackadaisical effort, such uh, lack of impact, um, the imperfect allyship systemically has right, it's been really, really troubling. And so what I wrote about was don't complain to me that black people are leaving when you're not actually doing the things that, that need to happen in order for them to stay. Right. Don't think I'm going to have this house that the white sheets are being used, not just for the bed. And you expect white, like black people to be like, yay, it's the best thing here. It just it doesn't happen. And now I, I keep saying this agency I love the freedom, the wings that Black people have now. We're like, oh, wait, you mean I can work from home? Hold up. You mean that that place over there is 0.3% better than this place? I can leave. What? I can get a signing bonus too? So the fact that there are some some shifts in cultures, anybody who is doing even just incrementally better is a better place than staying where you're at and being treated wrong. And so um, within that, there has to be change. There has to be a shift to say, this isn't working. We acknowledge that. We know that it's going to be hard, but if in fact, not just for the business case, but for the case of the world and for the case of of knowing that collective community is what our goals should be, 
right? To your point with funded by the values that we all have shared, or at least we have, we're saying we have, it's important and too much talk, not enough action and not enough sustained action and understanding that it's not going to be one straight shot to get where you need to be. So you just said something, Paula, that made me think about this. And that is how has work from home impacted your work and the impact of your work? Because I think that there's a difference between, you know, being in an office and having to actually, um, interact with folks in a much longer period of time when it could be a little challenging when you're in a shared space, you're in the water cooler, you're in the conference room versus you are on your computer, on your laptop. You can go to, uh, what is that called? Um, you know, do, do, you don't have to be on video for Zoom or whatever platform your company has to, to uh, happens to use. You can just be on the meeting for the time of the meeting and then jump off. How has this work from home dynamic affected your work or the impact of your work? Oh, I love it. I, I, I mean, I think that for some places, and it depends culturally, I think some places that there's been a severe detriment and other places there have been like the, the, the oceans are open in terms of what can be. Um, but you can experience a microaggression on these Zoom windows the same way that you can, right? If you were in the office and somebody's like, is that your hair? But it can still, right? it, it can still happen. So don't think that it shields you. But what I can do is turn this camera off, right? What I can say, what I encourage folks to say all the time is this, is this a camera optional meeting? Because I need to be able to understand who, like, who the people are and what they need and that we're stressed out on multiple levels. So I think there's opportunity in the space for us to do this work and to have more impact. I do a lot more international things now because of, the, of this, you know, this shared space. But it doesn't shield you from, from bias and uh, racism. No, there's, there's not a shield for it. I think in some ways it opens up more of an opportunity because you can work with somebody in three different, very distinct places and from a location standpoint in one day where that wasn't necessarily physically possible before. So it does open up the opportunity for you to be able to make some of that impact. Now, the kind of double-edged sword is that it means that you can do more, which for some people means, oh, so you can work more. And it's like, no, you mean I need more time to fix myself when I'm done here because <laughs> I need time to also take care of myself. Because again, I mean, the work that we do is not light work and, and Zoom fatigue is, yep. is real as well. And so I think in some ways it um, has made us have to pay more attention to our own mental well-being in ways that maybe before we could try to ignore a little differently. I think it opens up being able to work with people differently. It's not simply uh, about, you know, proximity in the same way. Uh, And at the same time, I think that it can present some opportunities for where there are people that are more willing to have these conversations because at least they have the opportunity to be rooted in their own spaces and have that access to safety in that way, in the way that they see see as fit versus you now have to be in this space that I have deemed this is going to happen. And I'm able to have access to the, the comforts that allow me to feel rooted and grounded and safe. And I 
you know, able to have a certain amount of space so that I am also not picking up your energy literally from you being right here. Now, of course, even on the Zoom screen, you can still pick it up. But a room full of people that are just kind of like light side eyeing you, like, I don't even know why you're here. That's a whole lot of energy to have to go out and want to have to happy dance and stamp off yourself when you walk out the door. It's a lot. And so being able to have some of that literal space there it's a reminder that like, hey, you know, whatever feels good, for you, you, you need to save yourself, you need to take a shower, you need to burn an incense, you need to do something, you need to go stand in the sun, put your feet in the grass, whatever it is that is going to allow you to disconnect from what you have picked up from everybody that you have interacted with and all of the stories that they have brought and all of the mindsets that they have brought, all of those pieces, you have to figure out how to disentangle yourself. This has caused us to have to get real about that. That's fascinating. I'm also fascinated by the idea that, because I was wondering from a, a, an employee standpoint, that's actually engaging in your work. Um, if they are as engaged because it's on zoom, but what I'm hearing from you is that they are for me they are i have teams that i've worked with now for like two years and they are very engaged and this is where you know when i think about like two in particular we have built a certain level of rapport to where there is that connection. We show up as humans. And so we're not shutting down if someone isn't feeling well, if someone is, is navigating, you know, personal challenges, because you, you have to bring the whole human. Mm -hmm. And so there's a certain amount of comfort there that because that person can be like, yeah, you know, my kid's sick, they're home. In case you see them kind of pop their head in, this is a thing. They are then able to go into other conversations with their guard down more because they don't have to feel like, is that unprofessional? Is, is that unprofessional? This is going to happen and it's going to change how you process me. We have moved past that. Right. And so I think the fact that this wasn't just I work from home or you work from home, we all had to work from home. Right. And a lot of us have stayed there. It was an equalizer. Right. And some people, it was like, let me figure out a nice office or it just became, all right, so this corner of my bedroom is what we got. This is what we're going to do because I don't I don't have access to this, especially when all of a sudden you had a whole family having to figure out how to right. work from home. And so the great equalizer, I tell you what, it didn't matter how much money you did or did not make. We all had to do the same thing. Stay to bleep home. <laughs> That is so true. So true. I want to start with you on this question, India, and that is, um, so we, I think we are all in agreement that, you know, DEI got hot on the heels of 2020, the racial reckoning. What I'm curious to know is, do you think this growth, this attention to it will continue at this pace? Do you think the pace will increase? Do you think it will stabilize or even maybe decrease? Oh, that's such a great question. And to be honest, I don't know, but I'm very hopeful that the people who have continued to do the work and are still doing the work today will make up for those that are dropping off. Mm. I love yes. that. That's oh that hard work. I, I felt that. I, that like, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I was like, I hope that's true too. <laughs> yeah. I, I fall off. 
It, well, I mean, it already did. did. I didn't hear what you said. It's going to fall off. You're going to think it's mm-hmm. going to fall off? Okay. I yeah. think when we get towards election season, like uh, the way that this country is going, right, and I'm talking about specifically the United States, because obviously it's DEI working on other spaces, but um, I am concerned that this narrowing down of laws, this the way in which people are shutting down and trying to revert is going to... Um, it's going to have an impact, and particularly if the election goes another way than what is um, wanted, it, it will definitely do that. And so um, I hope that the folks who are doing the work will be um, able to sort of quell that and make that flow sustainable. But I, I also am ready for that regression. Um, yeah, unfortunately. Right. Who's me wrong, please? Right. I was yeah. That, yeah. Right. I mean, I. I think I think it's already kind of fallen off because it's obviously not the same level of of pace or urgency, even if um, a lot of the urgency wasn't healthy. It's already very different than what it was uh, almost two years ago. So that is true. And at the same time, I think uh, stabilize is is an ideal word to use for it, because the people that simply wanted to come and visit and get a t-shirt and, and leave, we're going to do that anyway. It just happened in a way that it gave more awareness and visibility and platforms to those of us that maybe people weren't as aware of as, oh, there are other people out here that are an ideal fit for me because I work with a lot of small businesses and people that think I'm too small to do this. I don't, I, there's not someone here for me. And so it opened that up. And so even those that aren't currently engaging or are not engaging in the same way, stabilize is, is again, a great word for it because they are stabilizing their efforts in that they are continuing their efforts. They are still in it. They are still doing something. They are still aware. They are still curious. They are still inquiring as to what's possible and what they can do. And I think keeping that part is what's so important about it because it's it's one of those things that can almost look like, you know, an EKG machine where it's just up and down, up and down. And, you know, we, we know what a flat line looks like, which isn't necessarily what we're going for. But at the same time, the people that understand what needs to happen to get a certain amount of normalcy in it. So there's not quite as many peaks and valleys. Those are the people that are in it. They know that they're going to have points that, uh oh, this didn't quite go the way I thought I need help. Or, you know what? This excelled. Can we do more of this? And knowing that that is a part of the consistency in work that isn't meant to be consistent. Uh, Erica, one of the things that you say all the time is that DEI is not something that you do. It's how you do everything. And maybe it's the optimist in me (laughs) that this is coming from, but I am very hopeful. And I even encourage anyone listening who is not in the DEI space um, to consider how DEI may look going forward and how part of that is having more people who are in design, more people who are in branding, more people who are in management, leadership education, and all of these other career fields partnering with DEI consultants to figure out how can they infuse DEI into how they approach what they're doing. So that way, as things start to fizzle out of working with DEI consultants directly, it's still getting done in all the places of what happens in a business, what happens in a company, what happens in a brand. 
I love that. I totally love that. Cause to, to me, um, when I just kind of quickly process what you've just shared, it just reminds me of how excited I was when companies started really thinking of financial well-being as being a part of their well-being initiatives that they provide for their companies. Because for years, that was not the case. Like the exception to that was more of the rule than the rule. And now you have more companies coming around to recognizing, oh, we might want to take a look at this. (laughs) And I'm even more excited that uh, and this is this has occurred more in, in law firms than in other kinds of companies, but or firms. Um, but this idea that even within like affinity groups, that there needs to be a first generation affinity group, and that they're addressing the the challenges that first generation. And I don't mean that from an immigration standpoint, but first generation to go to to, uh, college, to get a law degree or to, you know, go to med school first in the family to earn six figures and all of the dynamics that come along with that, that there are some, uh, again, mostly law firms that have reached out to me about this that are focused on what are the, the, the challenges of first generation employees again through the lens of money but still like the fact that they're doing that i'm like oh oh my god this is fantastic (laughs) well and that makes me like that is where with the work i do hearing that that has technically you would think nothing to do with what i do but it has everything to do with it and that is what feels so good to me because it feels like everything that kimberly crenshaw has done comes to work and, and, and fully comes to life in that intersectionality in that way. Right. Because we often only look at the societal indicators. And when we think about it again, first to graduate college, first to make six figures, like that's huge mm-hmm. because that directly impacts whether or not you can possibly get a good foothold to start a legacy. Yes. And if we don't address those things, then we can't. And that is where it is so important to be able to have those spaces to address all of the things that people don't, again, they don't want to talk about them. You know, the fact that no one else in your family has done this. You didn't think that you could, but you did. You didn't think it was possible, but you did. You came, you saw, you stayed. Right. And that needs to be addressed and it needs to be supported because it does come with its own set of challenges. And what we always hear is like, you know, you made your first six figures. It's like, First of all, you know that you didn't actually take home six figures when you right. made that. Let me just start with that. But like, can, can, what happens next? Right. What happens outside of that? What you know? Right. And at then time, at me next time. At me. <laughs> <laughs> it hurts. Okay. <laughs> So true. So true. So true. Okay. I want to be mindful of your time. And so I want to do a round robin and whoever wants to go first can go first, but what are you excited about when it comes to the industry overall, when it comes to the opportunities for your business in particular and I think especially with regards to the cultural influence or impact that your work has on on our world. I'm excited about the opportunity to work with more leaders. 
um, you know, the, the, my primary leadership um, to entry point is law firm partners. And, and if you really think about it, they shape a lot of the world, right? <laughs> a lot, right? Where money goes to in terms of donations and both to nonprofits as well as to political parties, right? Um, who becomes judges? Like literally that demographic of primarily white men shapes so much. And so for me to have the opportunity to engage with them, to talk about being inclusive and understanding their own um, way that they show up and what privilege means and how it doesn't take away from their individual um, experience to acknowledge you know, societal privilege, that is a game changer. And so I know that each white male partner that I talk to where I have the opportunity for them to get vulnerable with me and, and for us to have conversations that is deep and impactful, I'm changing the world. I think for me, it's the fact that one, uh, as India mentioned, like DEI is not how you do one thing. It's how you do all things. And so continuing to work with companies that are not in the DEI space, but that are normalizing that what they are doing as a service provider or in a, a brand as a whole is done through that lens and understanding what that means for what they do uh, is, is a huge part of being able to create that impact and then let that impact begin to grow on its own because we can only impact who we can touch. And so it's really the ripple effect. And that's what's so important. So for me, continuing to work with people that are going to shift the way that they work and being able to work with brands that are trying to change industries. They are trying to shift the norms of how things are done, whether that's coaching, whether that's design, whether that is um, systems work, whatever that is, but the shifting of an entire industry by beginning with one that has a larger reach and opportunity to let behavior modeling really show what's possible. Mm, love that too. Mm. I'm excited for everything Erica just said, <laughs> as well as Paula. And I'm also really excited to see the shift happening from focusing on everything being about the individual, the individual human, the individual organization to really also recognizing that this work, we can achieve so much more in community. And so witnessing more people coming together and having deeper, meaningful conversations, reconsidering what is normal, re-looking at things that might seem like they have nothing to do with DEI, like your marketing strategy, or whether or not you have email opt-ins, whether or not you're seeking consent about sending people sales emails, and how in community, being able to navigate these conversations there is so much learning and unlearning that can happen from one another and also individual shifts that can change that leads to amplifying one's influence and allowing others to continue to follow suit of doing things differently. That's just awesome. Well, Paula Edgar, Erica Corday, and India Jackson, Thank you so, so, so much for spending time with me today and the good listeners. <laughs> oh my 
goodness. And uh, to you good listeners, I hope that you will take the time to share this far and wide um, because we can reach even more people with this conversation. And I think that the more hands that it is in, the more impact we can have and that multiplier effect can really take hold. So thank you all so, so very much. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) As you can tell, we had a lively conversation, didn't we? What did you learn from this discussion? Did anything surprise you? Will any of the stats change where you do business, how you do it, and with whom? Hey, if you're game, here's what I would love for you to do. Take a screenshot of this episode from wherever you're listening, post your answers on social media, and be sure to tag me and Paula Edgar and Erica Corday and India Jackson. We are all very, very active on Instagram. And by the way, although India and and Erica have individual IG pages, you can also just do it at pause on the play. But I just wanted to say a couple of things, and that is you heard lots of laughter. And if you could have seen some of our expressions on that Zoom call, um, you you would probably be surprised or maybe not. But what I wanted to just, you know, really put a pin on is our levity doesn't dim the seriousness of the work that is diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. It's a long game endeavor, and we've got lots of work to do. And there's nothing wrong with being bringing, I should say, a little joy and levity to that endeavor. But in the meantime, I want to thank you. I know this was a long episode, but I hope you enjoyed every minute of it. And I want to thank you as always for listening and listening all the way until the end. And of course, if you are curious about working with me or with Paula or Erica in India, please be sure to reach out to us via direct message on Instagram. If you'd like to show appreciation for this podcast or perhaps this particular episode, please share it so we can reach more people. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. We do read them. And if you'd like to buy me a coffee, here's how you can do that. Buymeacoffee.com forward slash Jaquette. Buymeacoffee.com forward slash Jaquette. Again, thank you for listening. And I'll be back next week. I hope you will too. Until then, remember, it's about more than money. 